0: So I just want to start this evening with a little bit of context about MEDACT. As a public health campaigning organisation, we exist to support the health community to work together towards a world where everyone can truly exercise their human right to health. And you can see some lovely pictures that, um, of as, uh, different protests that we're just going to leave up for you for a little while. We know that the social determinants of health are driven by political and economic systems that dictate how power and resources are distributed. This is why it's so vital, and the work that we wanna do is about bringing the health community together. We want to advocate for a world where our economic system is centered on health and well-being of people and planet, where everybody, no matter who they are, can access the healthcare they need to thrive, and where our ideas about security center, collective and human security instead of a punitive criminal justice system and defense spending. So I think for me, this vision is is huge and it's also really wonderful. Um, And to get there, it's gonna take a lot of work, a lot of local and national campaigning and advocating for a just and equitable world. And in doing this work, we hold to seek everyone who has power to account and to use our collective voice to advocate for change for this alternative vision. So this approach and this vision of what, uh, how we would like the world to be is really what brings us here tonight to this event to discuss the policing, crime, sentencing and courts bill. The bill which was announced in March is really, it's a huge, vast piece of legislation. Um, we can't cover everything in it tonight. There'll be so much that we'll miss in this short space of time for such a big piece of work. Um, it includes major government proposals on crime and justice in England and Wales. It directly targets marginalized communities through its expansion of police powers, its criminalization of the way of life of Gypsy, Roma and traveler communities, and its general expansion of the prison system. The bill uses the language of public health to justify handing the police a range of violent new powers. And as well as learning about that this evening, we're also gonna learn about how it implicates health workers and their relationship with patients by lowering the threshold to breach consent and pass information to the police. Um, So finally, I also just wanna talk a little bit about protest. It might be, if you've been reading the news about the bill, it might be the main thing that you've seen mentioned in the news. Protest is a tool that has been used for generations as an essential part of bringing about vital change. Just looking at the really early roots of our own movement and you can see a, a, a picture here in black and white, um, we were formed from health workers protesting against nuclear weapons since the 1950s and as we've grown and we've changed and we became Medact, in this practice we've continued to protest against the UK's role in the arms industry, as we've asked our rural colleges to divest from fossil fuels and as we continue to come together with Docs not cops to demand an end to the hostile environment. If you could move to the next slide please Ben. We have. Uh, a great picture from from one of our protests against the hostile environment in the NHS. So just to give a really brief introduction to what the bill um, does in terms of protest, it basically will give police powers to criminalize protest that it deems are too noisy or too much of a nuisance. It will increase sentencing related to protest. At the minute, the the maximum sentence for an organizer of a protest is three months. It is gonna increase that to 11 months plus a fine. People involved in protests could be charged up to £2,500 for breaching conditions imposed by the police. And there's not even any need for the police to show that the person charged even knew what the conditions were, or that they were were there in the first place. So this is just a few of the very worrying ways that the bill is going to restrict protest, and our ability basically to hold people in power to account. So for us, this is so dangerous. As a community who stand together to campaign for health equity, it's vital that we take action and that we stand in solidarity with those who this legislation is gonna attack. Um, Which is why we're so happy that all of you are here tonight to take part in this work. And we hope that from this evening, you'll understand more of the legislation, that you'll be inspired to take action. And we really hope to see you on May the 1st as we protest either online or in person Um, and beyond because this is gonna be a long and sustained piece of work and fight that we we need to join now. Um, So that's it for our introduction. So now I'm gonna hand over to Dr. Jessica Potter and she's gonna say a few words about Docs Not Cops and also introduce you to our brilliant panel. Hi everyone, uh, my name's Jess um, and I
1: just wanted to let everyone know uh, or speak a little bit about Docs Not Cops and uh, why we're here this evening alongside Medact. Um, Docs Not Cops is a grassroots organisation um, uh, who campaign for free healthcare for all and against restrictions to access to healthcare, particularly in the NHS, which undermine um, the idea of, uh, that healthcare is a universal right. And in particular, Docs not Cops grew up out of uh, in response to immigration um, regulations and uh, policing within the NHS. <coughs> and some of that um, uh, policing and those, those immigration regulations um, start uh, introducing uh, essentially uh, borders and bordering within um, within the health service and turn many uh, and, and try to. Enlist healthcare workers in in this policing, and we see that as an incredibly dangerous and and campaign. Very hard to try and um, ensure that there is um, no police immigration policing within the health service, and to remove these restrictions to the right to health and protest for us has been um, a key mechanism through which we've got our message out through direct action, whether it's um, standing outside the Department of Health or outside um, the Home Office, uh, letting people know what our message is and that we're we're here to um, make some noise and to raise awareness really. And so I I think it was really important for us today to, to join this talk. So I'm not going to speak anymore um, because there are some excellent speakers that we've got this evening. Uh, We're going to hear from Adam, Chelsea, Hill and Shanice. Um, I will introduce each one as we go along um, with a little bit more background and what they're going to talk about. Um, And if I could ask everyone to save their questions until the end, but please do use the chat box to, to type your questions as we go. So. To kick us off first, our first speaker is Dr. Adam Elliott-Cooper. Adam is a research associate specialising in sociology at the University of Greenwich. He organised with the monitoring group and Black Lives Matter UK and is author of the book Black Resistance to British Policing. Adam is going to start the panel off by talking to us about how the bill intends to limit protest and increases policing in a way that targets black communities. So over to you, Adam.
2: Uh, thanks so much, Jess. And thanks very much to uh, MedEx and for everyone else who put this organisation, put this uh, brilliant event together. Um, so. I'm going to talk a little bit about the wider context of uh, policing and borders and prison power, both um, in the prelude to uh, this bill being drafted, as well as the effects it may have on um, our police prison um, and border system, as well as um, civil liberties and the right to protest more generally. And and as as Jess mentioned, I'm going to think also more specifically about the ways in which um, it's likely to affect black and other um, racialized communities in this country. But also I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about alternatives to this bill and think about. the ways in which the movements of resistance some of whom are um, are going to contribute to our conversation today have been thinking about alternatives to the criminal justice and border system as we know it right so i'll get back i'll get straight into it so i think it's important for us to appreciate the context in this in which this um um this this bill is being introduced so since the early 1990s um the prison system has almost doubled. the prison population has almost doubled in england and wales um we now, in fact, the, the women's prison population has more than doubled since 1993. We now incarcerate twice as many women um, today as we do um, as we did in the early 1990s. We also have seen a massive increase in police powers, whether it be um, the power to surveil and monitor people um, through uh, monitoring people's digital communications, or monitoring people through uh, CCTV, or monitoring people through their relations through um, cultivating relationships with um, service providers, of course, healthcare. Professionals Professionals, but also people in education and universities, as well as people who work in housing or employment or other areas of public life. And we also see an expansion of police powers in, in, in with regard to the expansion of what are called injunctions, which I'm going to talk about a little bit as well. The fact that the police can impose injunctions or what are sometimes called control orders on people who haven't necessarily committed a crime, but they, but, uh, police intelligence uh, suggests that they are likely or at risk of uh, committing a particular offence, um, and which can which can restricts the extent to which people are able to move around, um, go to school or college, go to work, see friends or family, um, use the internet or social media. A whole swathe of um, uh, impositions on people's uh, liberties and if they break these injunctions they can they very often uh, receive a custodial sentence and so you see prison sentences being given to people not because they've committed an offense but because the police have suspected them as being likely to commit an offence and therefore imposed an injunction upon them and then they've broken that injunction and then been given a custodial sentence on that basis and there's a number of what there's a number of spheres in which we see these kinds of injunctions arising one of them um they probably really they really began or became really popular under tony blair with his um with his ASBOs, his antisocial behavior orders, but it was really accelerated by the conservative governments um, with things like what are called um, knife crime prevention orders, um, criminal behavior orders and gang injunctions, uh, which disproportionately targets black communities in particular, where young people who may not have committed an offense, but are suspected of being involved in a so-called gang, will have these injunctions imposed on them and therefore are channeled into the criminal justice system um, through these means. And we've also, of course, seen a massive expansion in our border regime. I'm sure, Many of people here are are probably familiar with the fact that um, not only has the prison population um, almost doubled since the early 1990s, but we also have specific prisons for people who are undocumented. They're they're called uh, immigration detention centers. And so again, we see this expansion of uh, Britain's uh, prison and and police and border power through these new prisons specifically designed um, to uh, incarcerate people who are undocumented. And so it's through the idea that um, uh, the the threats to law and order, the threats to public safety, the threats to peace and security in Britain arise through the threat of the gangster um, or the terrorist or the immigrants that we see um, the expansion of these state powers being rationalized and justified. Um, And so we can think about the ways in which this idea of the terrorist and the gangster and the immigrants therefore play on uh, ra- racist stereotypes and racialized ideas um, in order to, um, in order to be rationalized and justified as well. So we should be unsurprised therefore that's net, that currently uh, Britain's prison population is about 25% black Asian and minority ethnic and that Britain incarcerates black people at the same rate as the United States incarcerates African-Americans. And so we should also be unsurprised um, in a slightly different way that this has this massive expansion in police power, in prison power, in border power, and all of the violence that has accompanied it has led to massive protest and resistance and none none of perhaps and of course, some of the most well-known and well-covered well, um, uh, protests have been the, uh, the the Black Lives Matter protests that erupted in the summer of last year, where although, of course, it was sparked by the police killing of uh, George Floyd in the United States, the banners and the... Pro- um, and the uh, posters and the um, and the rhetoric that was coming out of these and the demands that were coming out of these protests were arguing for change here on British soil, um, arguing against the fact that um, despite there the, despite the police killings in the United States, here in Britain, on average, one person a week dies at the hands of our police, prison, and border system. The fact that we've seen a mass, this massive expansion in police and prison powers and not only was this protest hugely popular, we can see that it's continued on um, into 2021 with the pro- protest being led by brilliant groups like Sisters Uncut, which Janice is going to talk about in a little bit more detail, and of course the protests against the bill for which we're gathering today. And so I think it's in this context that the, this that this government is so fearful of um, of protest and the ways in which it's. It's continually expanding police and prison and border system is being challenged um, by grassroots protest organizations and campaigns. And so therefore, this bill that they're introducing does 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 a number of things. But we can broadly divide them into two very broad areas. One of them is expanding this already bloated police and prison system through the criminalization of Gypsy, Rover and Traveller communities. Um, through um, a new legal duty um, to support a multi-ag, what's called a multi-agency approach to preventing and tackling serious violence. So that effectively means that healthcare professionals Educational professionals, people who work in housing, employment, and other um, areas of public life will have a statutory d- duty to um, look at a, a list of um, what the police consider to be signs of radicalization or signs of violent behavior or signs of gang involvement and a number of other indicators. And if they see any of these indicators, they must report them to the police. And so we can see the ways in which if this is likely to further. Um, criminalize uh, black and other racialized minority communities, but crucially also um, alienate a lot of the most uh, marginalized and oppressed communities in our society from these. um, uh, From these institutions from their education system from the healthcare system from their place of work, housing, and so on and so forth so it's going to have quite serious knock on effects. The government are also seeking to introduce what are called serious violence reduction orders. Very similar to the gang injunctions, the knife crime injunctions and the the criminal behaviour orders that I mentioned before, where people who the police suspect of being involved in violent crime but haven't actually committed an offence can have these injunctions imposed upon them, restricting their liberties. And if they break that injunction, then they can receive a custodial sentence. But of course, um, one of the most... um, uh, One of the other really crucial sections of this bill is the threat to protest, the fact that the government is seeking to criminalise every feature and attribute of protest which, which can make protest effective, whether it be the fact that protests can sometimes be a surprise and the police aren't able to uh, organise quickly enough, which can lead to um, uh, criminal charges against organisers or participants, but also um, um, protests which are disruptive, which are loud, which might disrupt um, transport networks and all the other forms of protest, which means that people have to stop and listen and pay attention um, to what's being said, not simply um, everyday people, but of course also those in position of power. But I think what's also super crucial, and just in the last minute or two, I just really want to um, drill down on the, the fact that the process that we're seeing at the moment, leading from the process of 2020, aren't simply um, arguing for um, a repeal of these police Powers and this expansion of the prison system. They're seeking alternatives to it. Because while, despite the fact that our prison population has almost doubled in the last uh, 20 or 30 years, we haven't seen a significant improvement in public safety. We haven't seen the kinds of reductions in harm within our society that we're told that the expansion of police and prison power should afford us. And so, what these movements are arguing for is that the prison system is, is a failure. The policing system, as we know it, is a failure. And what we instead need are preventative investments in our communities that can reduce people's likelihood to coming into contact with the criminal justice system in the first place. We need to have investment in our mental health provision and support for survivors of domestic and gender based violence. We need better council housing and secure, well unionized jobs. We need better investment in our youth services, in our mental health practitioners and all of the other areas of education that young people rely on in order to build up build for their futures investment in all of these kinds of community and social led initiatives can replace the ever-expanding and failing police border and prison system um, while so thus Enabling our civil liberties, reducing the harm that that police and prison system reproduces, whilst also empowering our communities to develop the kinds of alternatives to this violence, police, prison and border system, which is which is threatening not simply those most affected by its particularly racialized communities, but everyone else in this country as well. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it there.
1: Thank you so much, Adam, that was absolutely brilliant and um, a fantastic overview of um, the real harm that this bill can do I was, uh, you know, particularly struck by the point that you know, none of this has been shown to work and and your examples of of what we need as an alternative. So our next speaker is Chelsea McDonough, who's a researcher and is going to speak to us about how the bill sets out to criminalise the Gypsy, Roma and Traveller communities way of life, which Adam just alluded to, and further entrench health inequalities, particularly relating to the, um, those communities. So welcome, Chelsea.
3: Thank you, Jess. Um, I think for me, this, is, this bill is, is, is something I've been speaking on for a little while. Um, and it first came about in the Tory party manifesto. Um, and for us, it was quite worrying, but actually to see what it has is, it is, then become part of, um, it is even, even more worrying. And I think there's a real lack of understanding. And I think for, for just woman traveling people, particularly those who are still nomadic or roadside, um, this, this bill is going to have a massive effect. Um, and this includes fines, prison sentences, the ability to seize goods, and this includes trailers and vehicles, which is essentially people's homes and livelihoods. Um, And it makes existing a criminal offence for the most vulnerable. And it really legalises and encourages state violence by the police. It increases evictions. Um, Effectively, they can ban families from, from areas for 12 months at a time, and whilst the UK it might seem kind of large, um, it isn't that big if we think about how many locations that these people are going to be evicted from. And you know, they say stuff like, "Oh, we'll escort them to the nearest transit site, but often there isn't one, or, or it's 50 or 100 miles away. It might not be in good condition, there might not be space. And often there are different reasons for an encampment being set up. But it allows, but it also uh, goes a little bit wider, and it allows the government to evict people from their own land if they don't have planning consent, and this this is very problematic because Gypsy Home Traveller people <coughs> historically have have really struggled um, getting planning permission. Um, when Eric Pickles was Secretary of State, he um, was was taken to court for essentially personally. Uh, throwing applications in the bin and putting a stop to people getting land, um, to getting planning permission on land they own. And I think for people who work in health, work in healthcare, it, it really needs to be understood in the backdrop. And it, when it comes to just to, to, to travel people, policy can be understood in one of two ways. The first is problematization. And we see this, this in the areas of housing and criminal justice. There's massive amounts of problematization. But in areas like health and education, we're met with silence, we're met with a policy wall of silence. And this is despite there being existing entrenched inequalities. Um, In in health, we we see just young traveling people dying much younger than the general population with life expectancy being 10 to 12 years lower. You know, I know from my own experience, one of my nan died at 67 and the other had a stroke at 60. We're not seeing the numbers live, you know, to their 80s and 90s, like we see in the general population. For us, people getting to 70 and, and, you know, I hear my parents use the term like, oh, that's a good age. And actually, it's it's really not. Um, But we also see other issues. There are exceptionally high rates of infant mortality and miscarriages. Most women I know have had a miscarriage. (laughs) <laughs> there are exceptionally high rates of suicide. Uh, for me, it's almost a bit of an epidemic, but a study in Ireland has revealed that 11% of travelers die by suicide. It's like something like six to seven times the general population. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a real, this, this is something that, it, is it, it, it affects most travelers. Um, two of my uncles took their own lives. Um, and I know of loads of others. But this stuff isn't being captured because the NHS doesn't include Gypsy woman traveller uh, ethnicities in their data dictionary because it costs too much money to change it. Um, But really what it means is that the full, the the, the true scale of the problem is known. This is particularly um, relevant in relation to COVID-19. And, you know, it's particularly those who are roadside and on sites, COVID spread massively. I I've got it twice in the space of a year. Um, and most people here have. But this this bill really only serves to further entrench entrench that. It it comes at it from this quick criminalization angle. And in health, just we're we traveler people, um, and I can speak from my own experience as a traveller, are less likely to 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 ask for support when it comes to mental health because the system in place is already heavily based on, on, a, on a model that criminalizes people. You know, if you already experience as a community, high levels of incarceration, the prospect of being, of being incarcerated to help you, isn't going to make you want to, to get support from that system. And this is why for me, there needs to be a real shift away. And if there doesn't, we will continue to see people take, take their own lives in these numbers. But to really understand this bill, we have to understand how the government and local authorities have consistently failed to meet the needs of gypsies and travelers. And this is in relation, particularly in relation to sites. Um, In in 1968, we had the Caravan Sites Act, which initially everyone thinks, oh, that's a great idea. And yes, it did. It, It placed a duty on local authorities to provide 15 pitches. But if they provided 15 pitches, they then had greater powers to remove everybody else, which meant that while some people benefited and my family included um, from getting a site, there were many people that were displaced as a result. But you know, 15 pitches in, in in 1970s is great. But what happens is these families expand and as kids grow up and have kids and grandkids comes along, it means that people are living in overcrowded accommodation. I know plots where there are four generations living on the same plot. And some people are being forced out, forced back onto the road because of overcrowding. And a recent report revealed that there were 2000 people on a waiting list, on waiting list, for something like, for like 50 something pitches. Um, and that doesn't include the people who, who don't go onto the waiting list because you know there's no point. You know you're never gonna get one, so you just tend to leave it off. but. We have this. We we have this this need that is not being met. We have a, a definition of the, the the government planning definition for travel. Excludes vast amounts of people. You have to be traveling for a certain number of weeks of the year. That isn't going to be possible if you're based on a site, or if if, if you're working, or if you're in education. Um, it excludes people like me. So the government don't count me as a traveler under the planning definition, despite having lived on the same the same site my whole life. And this means. You have less entitlement to be able to get a la to, to try and get planning permission. And it really causes very many problems. Um, and, and what we know is that the police already disrepo- use this disproportionate force when it comes to evictions. I personally have seen the eviction of an empty plot, no one was in it. Um, they came with an, in with 100 police police officers, to- total, you know, police that were very aggressive to people who'd had nothing to do with it, we know that two years ago, a trespass obviously at the moment is a civil offence, um, and a man was mauled by a police dog, obviously were then requiring stitches because he was pulled 12 foot across the ground, um, which then puts him into the hands of the NHS that have to deal with that. This is by the same, by a police officer that called for backup to deal with JIPOs. Um, And he got a warning for that, but not much else. So we already know this is what happens when it's a civil offence. If it's a criminal criminal offence, all it does is is give the police more powers to wield against us. And the reality is that most people don't care. Um, It's NIMBYism. They don't want travelers near them. Um, But actually, for me, and the final point I make is that we cannot legislate our way out of problems caused by legislation. The, the, the situation we're in now is as a result of legislation. The Caravan Sites Act is obsolete. It, there's, no, there's no duty on local authorities to do that. Um, you know, why are we going down? Continuing to go down this road of problematization, criminalization, it's not worked so far. You haven't get, managed to get rid of travel so far, going to continue to res- exist regardless. We need to look at a different approach. And I think health professionals have to you know get play consider a considerable role in it it's, if you understand this it's better makes it easier you know often the reason sometimes you get encampments in certain areas because a family members in hospital so so everyone has to go and these are things that are not always understood and it, it, it's about meeting need if we continue to problematize and criminalize we're just going to be in the same place but worse
1: Thank you so much, Chelsea, for that. Um, re- those really important insights and uh, really shocking statistics that highlight the already existing gross inequalities that Gypsy Roma traveller communities experience in relation to their health and the ways in which you know, further criminalisation. I think, as you say, we can't legislate our way out of problems caused by legislation, and this further criminalisation is just going to make those existing inequalities far worse. Next up, um, we have Dr. Hill Aked, who is Medact Research Manager. Uh, They hold a PhD in political sociology and specialize in investigative research on topics including the pro-Israel lobby and the prevent counter extremism policy in healthcare. Welcome Aked, uh, sorry. Welcome, Hill. (laughs) We're really looking forward to hearing you speak. Thanks, Jess, and
4: thanks, Adam, Chelsea, and Shanice. It's great to be part of a a really brilliant panel tonight. Um, So I'm going to focus on the serious violence partnerships part of the PCSC bill and talk about the health context, what it means for health workers, and um, also how the government is using the language of public health to promote this racist and authoritarian bill. So firstly, what would the PCSC bill do um, in in terms of the health sector? So one of the most problematic things it does here is it creates a new duty, and Adam alluded to this, on certain public authorities, including clinical commissioning groups and in Wales um, health boards, to collaborate on um, police-led serious violence partnerships, SVPs. And the Civil Liberties Body, Liberty, has said that effectively um, the PCSC bill creates what it calls a prevent duty for knife crime, and um, prevent being the counter extremism policy that uh, Met published a report on, published a report on last year, and 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 Liberty's made that comparison because where the prevent duty requires public bodies to have due regard to prevent people being drawn into terrorism. The PCSC bill is doing the same, but it's courts telling them they have a duty to prevent people being drawn into serious violence. And why, you know, while preventing people being drawn into serious violence might sound like a very worthy aim, the measures that it proposes to do this are actually going to be highly racially discriminatory. They're going to erode confidentiality and trust within healthcare. They promote a really shallow and reactionary idea of what public health is. And ultimately, they're going to be ineffective as well. So I'm just gonna elaborate a bit on on why um, MEDEC takes that view. So firstly, like PREVENT, this is a pre-crime policy area. So no one's actually committed any crimes. And that's a really murky area. And there's no real evidence to prove these measures are gonna be effective. Um, And and it's not easy. That's because it's not, you can't really predict who is going to uh, be a a future criminal. Um, And therefore, as Adam mentioned, they use these really broad and vague risk criteria. And um, when it comes down to people who are, uh, are asked to identify um, who therefore is likely to be drawn into, whether it's terrorism or serious violence, um, you're actually, what you're doing is you're making health workers and other public sector workers fall back on um, unconscious bias. You're essentially empowering unconscious bias because you're not giving them any actual real tools to this job that you're forcing on them. There's plenty of academic research to show that, you um, it's racialized communities who are deemed suspect, who are deemed threatening. And it's therefore inevitable that already over-policed communities, especially black communities, are gonna be disproportionately identified as at risk of serious violence and therefore impacted by this new duty, just as Muslims are by the prevent duty. Um, And so it will worsen the racial profiling and discrimination that's already rife within healthcare and society at large. It's also problematic from a point of view of confidentiality. So this duty, um, as has been alluded to already, is another way, yet another way, to force health workers to police their patients on top of the prevent duty and on top of the hostile environment, which Jess spoke about at the start. And in practice, it's very, very likely to undermine health workers' existing professional obligations around confidentiality. Now, as all the health workers in the audience will know, confidentiality guidelines, such as those set out by the NHS and the General Medical Council, set out very clear and very specific and very narrow instances in which confidentiality may be breached, for example, in the public interest, if it is necessary to prevent risk of death or serious harm, for example. However, with serious violence violence partnerships, like, like Prevent, we're operating much further upstream, there's no imminent threat, it's like people who may be drawn into this at some future date, unspecified date. And so what happens, we know what happens when health workers are pressurized to pass on sensitive personal data, which has been shared with them in confidence, it erodes trust, and it further deters people from seeking care when they need it. And a third thing I wanna point out is that the government um, is using the language of public health um, to, to promote this bill. And that's another reason that Med Act is really concerned and we think public health professionals and all health workers should be concerned. So the government's saying, it's taken a public health approach to tackling serious violence. And in a consultation document published this month, it talks about pub, a public health approach being basically synonymous to a multi-agency approach. Um, And using the language of public health isn't new, we've seen it with Prevent, um, and we talked about that in our report last year, Um, but in MEDAC's view, the PCSE bill is in no way a real public health approach. Um, However, the reality is there are radically different schools of thought about what public health is, and some of you in the audience, and many of you will, will know this already, but for anyone who doesn't and wants is is interested to find out more. I won't go into too much detail, but um, our former MedEx, former interim director, Guppy Bowler published a report last year called Reimagining Public Health, which sets out some of the different approaches and different understandings of public health really clearly. And she talks about how at the end of the 20th century, uh, public health practice evolved into the biomedical model. And this was fueled by the growth of the pharmaceutical industry. And she says that our fascination with taking a pill or discovering a vaccine actually ended up crowding out, important as those things are, crowded out space for considering what was driving ill health in the first place, such as our environment and our social structures. And she explains that there's been a further shift to a contemporary uh, socio-behavioral model of public health, which emphasizes the individual, individual responsibility even more. And that fits very neatly into the neoliberal Um, mindset. So it places personal blame and responsibility on you if you've smoked or you if you've eaten too much and therefore, you know, coronavirus has taken a a worse toll on you. Um, But there are other approaches to public health and these are the ones that Medic seeks to sort of uh, uphold. And they also focus on prevention, but they're concerned with creating conditions which protect the health of whole populations rather than targeting individual patients with with nudge theory and these kinds of approaches. And, And a commonly used phrase is that it focuses on the causes of the causes of ill health. So rather than heart disease, the cause it's the conditions that led that person to develop heart disease that we take an interest in. So all of the social, political and economic conditions that shape our lives, the social determinants of health, as Becky said at the start. And when public health is understood in this way, it is, or at least can be, Um, a strategy for abolitionism. And there's a really brilliant article in the British Medical Journal um, called Policing is a Threat to Public Health, which I really recommend by um, Abby Devine yagam and Sarah Lasoy and others, where they propose a definition of abolitionist public health. And they write that public health should be about the implementation of interventions that tackle the social, economic and political determinants of health at the root of societal problems, including prioritizing access to housing, better employment and education opportunities, increasing funding for mental health and substance misuse services, and thus make the police obsolete. So despite talking about addressing the root causes of serious violence, unfortunately the government's PCSE bill doesn't do anything of the sort. It barely addresses the causes, let alone the causes of the causes. It makes no attempt to solve uh, social, economical, political issues upstream, uh, even though they're the factors that give rise to crime. Um, instead, it's focused very much on the symptoms and essentially it's just criminalizing the people at the end of this chain of societal causation. And this just reproduces violence in a, in a damaging cycle. So we say that policing, even preemptive policing, is not a public health measure. It's a law enforcement measure and it can never be a part of a public health approach. The guiding paradigm of policing is criminal justice. And to quote from the BMJ article again, policing is an institution whose sole response to the consequences of unmet need is criminalization and the perpetuation of inequality. So just to finish up, um, I'll just talk a little bit about what an alternative approach to public health might be, to a public health approach to tackling serious violence might look like. So firstly, it would uphold Um, basic principles such as confidentiality, non-discrimination, and the presumption of innocence, and it would not involve surveillance and state violence and the adverse health impacts which they have. Instead, it would involve a transformative agenda which promotes equality and inclusion instead of accepting the status quo of inequality and exclusion, and it would shift resources away from policing and towards action to address the social determinants which are actually flagged as risk factors of serious violence in the government's report without being addressed. And they're things like community deprivation, domestic abuse, social school exclusions, and substance abuse. And, you know, addressing these things are not very appealing to politicians, especially um, because they're, they're long-term. Um, they are no shortcuts and there are no easy solutions and they can't be done under austerity. But in the end, it's the only thing that's actually gonna work And actually, it's not even that radical. Some of you may have seen that last week, um, the head of Merseyside police made headlines when he retired. And he said that if we really want to reduce crime, then we should be spending money on tackling poverty and inequality. And I'll leave it there. Thanks.
1: Thanks so much, Hill. Um, So much of that struck a a chord with me, particularly um, the the, um, evoking of public health and the the language associated with public health, which often can be used to kind of raise questions of healing and and how we can heal more rather than why do we need this Uh, sort of policy um, and who is it impacting? And I think it's really important to be asking those questions when when people are disingenuously um, uh, invoking this language of public health um, in a way that this bill does. So uh, our next speaker um, is Shanice. Oh, here we go, sorry. How are you, Shanice? And Shanice is going to be our final speaker. Shanice is a feminist activist involved in direct action, community organizing, and the movement to Kill the Bill. Shanice, I'm going to hand over to you to tell us about the amazing work that hundreds of groups are doing in the Kill the Bill coalition. Thanks very much for closing us.
5: Thank you so much for having me. Um, So, I guess I'll start with where everything kicked off, which is the 13th of March. On that night, um, women mourners and protesters gathered in common to uh, honour and mourn uh, the life and death of Sarah Everard, who was murdered by a Metropolitan Police officer. And on that night, the Metropolitan Police used the narrative of public health around coronavirus to mete out violence against the women mourners and protesters who gathered on that night and by the 14th of march so the sunday the day after a political crisis had emerged with Cressida dick um facing calls to resign with Pretty patel releasing a twitter statement saying um i am saddened by the scenes that i've seen at clapham common and will be ordering some kind of investigation, with Keir Starmer commenting, um, which is an unlikely thing to happen, but on the 14th of March it did, Uh, with Harriet Harman commenting, Sadiq Khan commenting on the violence that was witnessed by the Metropolitan Police against women the night before, and by the 15th of March, the Monday, a political movement had started to emerge with protests being called in London day after day after day for the following week with protests being called across the entire country by that time. And then a few days later, on the 18th of March, the police crime sentencing and courts bill was delayed. And I think the moral of that story is the fact that we can turn tragedy into change. And we do have power, protest works. Um, But that's just the beginning of the story. It's quite incredible to think that we're only five weeks away from when things first kicked off in Clapham Common, but here we are. And on the 1st of May, so this Saturday, um, we will be seeing a national action taking place, again across the country, um, and it's been called by a coalition that at least in my short life I've never really seen um, before, with unions, including trade unions, renters unions, feminist activist groups, from direct action activist groups, um, to NGOs, to individuals and organisations from the Gypsy Roma Traveller community, from organisations representing Black youth and Black campaigning groups like Black Lives Matter and Forefront, from student climate activists, to students in higher education, to students and lecturers and teachers across the sector, to medics yourselves, All the way to sex workers, to disability justice activists, and to people who have actually experienced criminalisation at the hands of police. This big coalition of people and this vast coalition of organisations has come together and are talking to each other, um, and have called the National Day of Action on the 1st of May. And although as exciting as that National Day of Action is, and as exciting as all the events that have happened up until this point are, this really is just the beginning. Because although we did, in our power, manage to delay the bill, we haven't yet defeated the bill. And I want to talk briefly about why it's important to defeat the bill. So people have already spoken about the impact that this bill presents to certain communities, the Gypsy Roma Traveller community, Adam spoke very eloquently about the expansion of stop and search powers using serious violence reduction orders. And I just wanna flag again that even, you know, government government's own research. So I wanna kind of flag Operation Blunt 2, which was a piece of research done, I believe in 2016, itself showed that stop and search does not reduce crime. And yet here we are again, giving the power, police more powers to disproportionately impact young black men. And touching on specifically the impact that these powers will have on protest. Um, it's been mentioned already, but it's really worth reinforcing the point. They're looking at criminalizing protests for being noisy and for being annoying. That is what the legislation says. They're looking to increase sentences um, for straying away from police-imposed conditions on protest, and they will criminalize you even in cases where you can provide evidence that you didn't know what these conditions were that were put on the protests so they're really trying to as adam said trying to criminalize all the elements of protest that make it effective that are littered throughout our history from the chartists to the miners to the poll tax and to all the kind of activism that took place in the context of austerity they're really trying to batter down on our ability to fight back and the reason why i wanted to emphasize that point is because it points to how we must fight against this Bill, And I want to think specifically about the history of the poll tax in this case, because I think that's quite illustrative here. Um, It's fantastic, you know, that characters like Jeremy Corbyn and other MPs in the Labour Party are doing great work in Parliament and in the chambers to challenge this bill. However, the reality is the Conservative government have a vast majority, and this bill has already reached its third reading. Even Conservatives critical of this bill are still voting for it. And so that tells us that actually where we need to focus our energies and where we need to focus our strategy is not necessarily in Parliament, as important as a diversity of tactics is, but is in the streets. The poll tax being the perfect example, the movement was built to the point where the police couldn't actually enforce um, people paying the poll tax. People refused to pay it, people took to the streets, people used civil disobedience as a tactic uh, to empower themselves to fight back against those in power. And that's what we have to do with this bill. We have to follow in the tradition of working class resistance from the strikers of Brunwick to the uprisings against the poll tax in recognition that civil disobedience is gonna be our most powerful tool to hold uh the powerful to account in this case and that's precisely because the bill tries to crack down on our ability to protest we have to say if you if you want to criminalize noisy protests we're gonna host the noisiest protests you've ever seen and if you want to criminalize annoying and disruptive protests then we have to uh, hit the streets en masse with the most annoying and the most disruptive protests possible because it's through a diversity of tactics which includes whatever happens in parliament but also what happens in the streets that is gonna make this bill ungovernable, make this bill unenforceable and ultimately hopefully collectively kill and defeat this bill. But I think another important point to make with civil disobedience is that we must approach it from the perspective of solidarity. We must also mobilize our networks to support the Gypsy Roma Traveller community who face state violence and who face eviction from the state. If that's happening in a place near us, the same people who are out on the streets protesting the bill should be supporting that community in eviction resistance and in combating the abuses the police often use in their powers against the Gypsy Roma Traveller community. It means knowing your rights, it means ensuring other people in your community know their rights and intervening and observing and the uses of stop and search and other police powers when you see them taking place. And I think for the first time maybe in a really long time The kind of slogan of an injury to one is an injury to all, is not just meaningful but has to be meaningful in order for this movement to win and in order for this movement to survive. We have to stick together and we have to keep fighting until we beat defeat defeat this bill in its entirety. There's nothing about this bill um, that we can allow to pass. And I just want to close Um, by talking very briefly about the story of Osim Brown to demonstrate how giving the police more powers, how giving the courts and immigration enforcement more powers uh, is going to be a disaster for us all. So for those of you who don't know, Asim Brown is a young black autistic and learning disabled man who's facing deportation to Jamaica. He left the country when he was four years old and he was criminalized through joint enterprise laws. He was convicted for basically being in the same place when his friend's mobile phone was stolen. Um, and so it's actually no coincidence that the policing bill was drafted in the very same building um, that decided to deport Osine Brown, which is Pretty Patel's home office. So if the state is already using the powers that exist to criminalize women, trying to mourn the death of a fellow woman and to criminalize young learning disabled and vulnerable people like Oseemay Brown with its existing powers, We cannot trust it with more powers and that's why we have to hit the streets and we have to be brave enough uh, to take civil disobedience for our rights.
1: Thank you so much, Shanice, for such a powerful ending and for setting um, the importance of protest and protesting this bill specifically in the context of historic protest um, and and um, you know your point that we have to be brave and that an injury to one is an injury to all and it's all of our responsibilities to stand up and challenge this bill so um we've come to a close um, of our panel and before we go to a quick break we've got 10 minutes for questions so i'm going to hand over Uh, back to Becky to facilitate that and then um, it won't be long before you can pop off and grab a a drink and a quick uh, respite before we come back to our groups. Over to you
0: Becky. Great thank you so much and um, please feel free if you've got any questions do just pop them into um, the chat box. We've just got a couple so far. Um, So our first one was um, to Hill and to Shanice. Um, Are there particular things that you think health workers could be doing to take action? Um, Happy for either of you to to start with this one.
4: I can uh, chuck a few ideas in the mix and hand over. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I think, you know, Shanice mentioned, there's a a room for like a plurality of tactics here. Health workers specifically can um, try to engage their colleagues, work through grand rounds, you know, get get your Royal Colleges involved, bring motions to your unions, also like look to what has already been done, the great work that Docs Not Cops have been doing, the Patients Not Passports campaign, um, in terms of just like non-cooperation and building resistance uh, at the grassroots level to, to the policies that the government is is trying to force people to participate in, because ultimately this kind of whole society approach to, whether it's terrorism or the hostile environment, or, um, or this, you know, it re- requires um, our participation. And when we withdraw that, uh, that's that's powerful. Um, I'll pass on to you, Shanice, if you want to come in at all.
5: I think the key thing is that this movement has to be mass. Um, and, you know, I, I it's a little bit brave of me to ask people to be brave and, you know, hit the streets and be civilly disobedient. But the only way we can do that safely is if we do that collectively and if we do that en masse. And that means going really back to basics, having conversations with people you don't talk to usually, speaking to your neighbors, building from the community level up in your workplaces, chatting to your colleagues, and really doing that hard, long, slow slog work of getting people out in support of this cause because it's only on mass that we can win.
0: Great, thank you so much. Um, so, a question for any of you: um, How the kill the how will the kill the bill movement? How can we make sure that we include the wide issues as we protest that gave rise to the government uh, trying to create this bill in the first place? As many of you have said, this legislation is built on already existing um, legislation. So, uh, would anybody like to go for that question? Adam, thank
2: you. Uh, yeah, I, I guess briefly, I, I think. One of the things that's really inspiring out of the more radical elements of these protests are, are arguing about not simply what we want to get rid of, but how we want to build solutions. And I think building solutions uh, to the kinds of um, problems we're seeing in relation to uh, the attacks on civil liberties and oppressed communities um, and the expansion of police, prison and police power is the, the fact that we want that this that people Coming into more and more contact with these systems of state violence because other other areas of social life have been eroded, right? Because we've had cuts in um, employment and access to education, because we've had cuts in housing, particularly council housing, because we've had cuts in mental health provision and youth services and um, uh, domestic violence services. All of these things are very much connected. Um, to this um the problems that we're facing in 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 um in relation to police and prison power and so i think it's about making those connections which i think are l- a lot, if not almost all, of the kind of campaign groups around the Kill the Bill um, movement bit, um, have been making already quite quite articulately and making it very and powerfully. Um, I think it's about continuing to galvanise and continuing to kind of have enable that to snowball so that people can make those connections between what we want to build as well as what um, needs to um, be dismantled.
0: Great, thank you so much. Would anyone else like to also speak to that one? Okay, so let's move across to the next question. Um, so there's a question on, um, would the speakers agree that defining criminality by how people regard you is a large part of what lets discrimination and prejudice in?
2: I know, I know I've just spoken, but- um, No,
0: go for it, Adam, thank you.
2: I, I, I think, I think i think that we have to understand that crime is not has has very little to do with morality and justice and has and what, what who is considered to be a criminal um, has far more to do with how you're classed and how you're racialized and how you're gendered within our society um so like this is something i always say to my students like um if you're like suspected of carrying a gun in tottenham you can expect to be stopped by the police and arrested. They might even shoot you without, before asking any questions. But if you sell F-16s to Saudi Arabia and cluster bombs to Israel, you probably get an OBE, right? So we've got two groups of people doing very similar things. The dissemination of weapons. One is like criminalized and potentially executed on the spot. um, While the other is not simply not criminalized but celebrated and venerated, right? And we can think of lots of other ways in relation to criminalised drugs or um, the appropriation of goods. Like All of these types of things um, have far less to do with morality and justice and have far more to do with um, uh, race and class and gender. Um, So, yeah, I think crime is a fundamental way of um, expanding um, and rationalising those divisions between um, people with different... um, class positions and and people who are racialized differently.
3: I think I would also come in here and say being a criminal or not doesn't strip you of your rights, that it's regardless, like it it shouldn't, we shouldn't be advocating for, for people on the basis if you meet these conditions, we should be doing that regardless and I think that's the point I would always hammer home and it's the same with with healthcare, medical care, we don't withhold that based on, on what opinions we might have of people. We give it regardless.
0: Great, thank you both so much for that one. Um, so let's move on to our final couple of questions really that are around um, the framing of how it is to protest um, during a pandemic and, and uh, what some of the panel's thoughts might be on, around this piece of, um, this, this issue basically.
4: Yeah, I can say a few words. If if
0: um, yeah,
4: I mean, obviously, like when when people are calling protests, I don't think they're doing it during during a pandemic. I don't think they're doing it without a lot of thought and social responsibility, telling people to bring Mars to keep their distance. But obviously, we have to bear in mind that um, as we've been talking about tonight. Um, you know, policing is also a public health threat. I was very struck by last year when the Black Lives Matter protest, uh, you know, erupted here. You know, photographs of young black women saying, "You know, this is what we're more concerned about right now." Actually, like the threat to our lives is not just coming from the pandemic, and actually, obviously, as we all know, it's black and brown communities who've been both victims of the pandemic most, as well as uh, policing. And unfortunately, we've seen with with the with the Bill protest so far, it's police the policing of those protests has been what's putting people in danger a lot of the time, unfortunately, like corralling people into small spaces when they would like to be socially distancing a lot of the time. So I think it's about putting it in perspective in that way if that, if that helps. I don't know if anyone else wants to come in.
5: Yeah, I can hop in. Um, I think it's important to not you know, dismiss people's concerns about the risk of mingling in a pandemic, but it is also important to say that police violence against the black community is a pandemic police violence against the Gypsy Roma Traveller community is a pandemic, and it's a pandemic that these communities have been living with for decades, for centuries, not just from 2020 to 2021. So it's important that in these, in the case of this very unique, I feel, historical opportunity to really build a movement that can sustain and bring about change, that we find ways for us all that are comfortable for us to engage in that. For some people, that's gonna be protesting with a mask on and being socially distant. For others, and it's not just people who are concerned about coronavirus, it's also people who are disabled, people who cannot because of previous criminalization take further risks of being arrested, for example, or taking um, action that is civilly disobedient. So there should also be other ways for people to engage and that might look like uh, virtual events. So to give you an example, the disabled people against the cuts are, are doing a virtual version of the 1st of May action for people to participate in uh, from home. Um, but that said, I think it's I think it's really important that we use this opportunity to stand by communities who are being targeted and recognize that what's happening to these communities is also a life and death issue, as Chelsea discussed quite eloquently um, the public health impact on criminalization on the gypsy rome traveler community similarly in black and working class communities is one that lasts for years and years and years and years and i feel we now finally have the momentum and we are finally having these conversations together and i would really encourage people um, to think about what risks you are happy and willing to take um, but to stand with us on that
0: Thank you so much. What an amazing way to end the panel. Um, And just to say, in addition to that, that we are going to be taking the time now to go into breakout rooms to think about what we can do, both in terms of being together in protest in person, and also what we can do separately from that as well. So just really appreciate um, the time that all of the speakers have come to talk to us about this issue. And thank you all so much. Um, And we really hope that... uh, Everyone here is inspired to take action, whether that be in person or online.